0: I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. On this podcast, we feature encounters with natural wonders and amazing people who are themselves natural wonders, and with art and science history, stories of discovery and adventure, and we tend to celebrate a lot of joyful, upbeat stuff, you know, accentuating the positive. So when I tell you that we're going to be delving into the serious topic of disaster recovery today, I don't want to leave you scratching your head because even in the aftermath of a tragedy maybe even especially then there's beauty and something profound in how people put their lives back together bringing us a few powerful stories of survival in this episode will be producer tenery taylor
1: on april 15th 1989 lucy a 10 year old british girl was watching tv with her dad and saw something horrifying something that probably would have haunted me for years. But Lucy, even though it was a devastating tragedy, she took her life's inspiration from it.
2: The city where I'm from, Liverpool, had a very serious football stadium crush uh, for its fans. They were at a, a neighboring ground police made a number of failings that meant that the fans uh, were let into a space where uh, the front rows of the fans in a a standing stadium, so people were stood up, were crushed at the front of the the pen and uh, many people were injured and many people were very traumatised on that day, as well as, as the 97 who died. But what was also very bad, and not unusual actually in my career to see this, is that the community themselves were very badly treated in the media and by our politicians. So you're had what was really a sort of secondary disaster. And that absolutely inspired me to get involved with working with communities and families after uh, something terrible happens to see if we can, you know, obviously that a terrible thing has happened, but surely there are ways we can improve the care of those families. And that really galvanized me going forward. You said the victims were badly treated and the community was badly treated. How so? You know, the disaster is the start of something. The terrible event on the day itself really only kicks off a, a huge aftermath. So there's a lot of legal pain. There's a quest for justice. Um, this will be very familiar in the US as much as the UK. People will be trying to get to the truth. Uh, even though now, obviously, with social media, we see a lot of smearing of, of of relatives and communities. That's happened for decades. So in the 1980s, there wasn't things like Twitter, but there were newspapers that ran with stories that the Liverpool Fans had had urinated on their dead and stolen from their dead. And all of that was proved to be completely untrue. But it left this legacy uh, that even now rival football fans will taunt Liverpool fans with those terrible myths. So it wasn't just the initial event that causes the pain. What it taught me was how we respond to the disaster How we are compassionate to each other after disaster has a huge effect on uh, how communities uh, try and survive something.
1: Lucy's dad, when they were watching TV that day in 1989, he yelled at the TV that somebody needs to sort this. And little Lucy decided she would. She's now an independent consultant who works on disasters and preparedness around the world. When she married, she took on the last name East Hope, which I think is just perfect for someone who's going to help people recover from major trauma. She's written a book titled, When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. Lucy East Hope arrives on the scene when investigators have to decide how to handle the personal effects of victims. Their clothing, their cell phones, a child's stuffed animal, the flood-damaged homes, DNA. For over 20 years, she's been on the scene of plane crashes, floods, the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, even 9-11. And what Lucy has found in those moments, that is when normal life is upended by death and destruction. What she has found is that you have to understand this thing about how we live— To understand how to deal with death and trauma, let me introduce you to a concept called the furniture of self, a term borrowed from the American disaster expert Kai Erickson.
2: So, when a disaster like a flood, a hurricane, a tornado rips through your community, it takes with it the things around you, the horde, the things that are in your, what we call here, the sitting room, (laughs) you know, the things that are precious to you that make up your life. They might be the bus tickets that you caught on the, you know, the first date with your partner, any of those things. Um, And those are lost. And even if, Uh, You haven't. Lucy, I just have a question, though. Is it just like memorabilia
1: or can it just be the couch that, you know, you've had for 10 years and you remember buying it as your first purchase as newlyweds or something like that?
2: Yeah. The couch is right there at the heart of it. You know, the 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 actual literal furniture. And of course, the way that insurance policies often work is they give you a check. They say, go and buy a new couch. And people will say, no, but the couch was. Was everything? It was where I told somebody I loved them. It's where I, you know, brought my first baby home to, and the idea of just going to buy a couch with the replacement money is not the same thing. So, for me, really, the furniture of self can be absolutely anything, even down to the color of the walls. Often, people just don't have the same energy and heart when they're decorating their house again after a flood or a tornado or a hurricane that they just don't um, they don't feel the same anymore about the the life around them. Uh, And that's very important to understand if you're trying to recover a community.
1: Do you find yourself ever in arguments with insurance uh, agencies about, no, this needs to be restored, not replaced? Yeah,
2: that's probably... You know, 50% of some of my working week is advising organizations. Um, We have a long history here in the UK and very similar to you guys in the US of having to fight insurance companies about life after disaster, you know, very much so. And um, uh, one of the big challenges, for example, in my work with personal effects is the insurers have a strict policy of only paying once. So, for example, in flooding here, you have to show that you've completely destroyed the item. So I I worked once on an old people's sheltered accommodation and they had things like an old cabinet that was very special to them or a kitchen table that five generations of the family had sat around and they had to physically demonstrate it being cut up with a chainsaw to show that they would due money for the damage in their house. And that sort of makes financial sense, but was just an additional heartbreak. And even with the personal effects work, so if somebody dies the insurers will fight us sometimes on that. And often what you'll find, for example, is the airline will put in extra money because the insurer won't pay for some of the work.
1: But even if any one person's furniture of self could be magically restored after a disaster, which of course can't, large-scale disasters like floods wipe out not just houses full as they are with their respective furniture of selves, but they also wipe out infrastructure and public places and the homes of beloved neighbors and relatives and the web that connects these places to each other. It's something that Lucy East Hope pays particular attention to.
2: Oh, these are so important to me. And I think they are something that will resonate with all listeners, however small their community is. And I draw them in my writing. You know, I, I draw... Um, like little dots on a map, all the places that are important to a community. That might be a particular uh, matriarch or patriarch's house. It might be the village shop. It might be the churches. It might be the post office. And one of the things that disaster responders are very bad at is appreciating how these assets within a community completely entangle with how well a community survives and recovers. So uh, one of the first things I do when I'm assessing how this community is affected is really look at what I call the life um, and it's a beautiful exercise, you know, often at the heart, you know, it makes sense, it's, it's hospitals, it's schools, but also hidden places. So here in the UK, um, a television programme after one flood that I've been involved in, really put a lot of effort into rebuilding a community centre. So these places aren't always big and shiny. They're not always, you know, where the mayor knows to go, but they are so vital in community recovery. And, and I love to be able to map and and draw them out in the in the recovery.
1: So you've got this life meaning it's not just your home that's important. It's the other places that you go regularly, people who know you there. But also you've got your neighbors and you have seen um, in some places better than others recovery efforts that preserve the neighborhood while the people are not living in their homes. Yes. Can you kind of describe that?
2: Yes. And I mean, you know, the house is important, but what's equally important is preserving that local network. So we had learned from you, you know, our country was very badly flooded in 2007. And you had produced a number of lessons learned documents after things like uh, the Hurricane Katrina disaster in 2005 about the damage that is done when neighbor is separated from neighbor. So one of the things we tried to do here with essentially what were trailer parks that were built after the flooding, in one of the examples that I followed very closely, they attempted to rebuild the same street st- uh, structure and same you know s- uh, street signs that had been there in the disaster. And that was hugely successful. So can you picture that? A farmer gives over a field and they build up a
1: trailer park that replicates the layout of the streets that flooded. It's like they put the Johnsons right next to the Joneses or next to the Smiths like they had been for, say, 20 years, all right down to the street signs to reflect a real address, even though that actual home was still caked in mud and full of rot
2: several miles away. But that's not all. And also putting in things like schools and cabins and uh, a big laundry and shops so that while the area was rebuilt and there'd been a lot of damage done, the people didn't drift away. And that was a big difference to, say, the New Zealand earthquake, where we also did see the use of temporary uh, sheltering. But the task was so huge that often people would drift away to family in Australia or elsewhere, and you lose that community. So for me, because I've always got my eye on the future, The role played by community in disaster recovery is really essential.
1: Lucy Easthope is the author of When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. A little later in this episode, we'll visit a community that is still figuring out how to preserve their ruined scape after the cataclysmic loss of their town overnight. The effort to recover and heal there has been given a heroic boost by a group of truly extraordinary teenagers.
3: We knew people were struggling after the fire, and we knew they liked football, so we wanted to give them something good to watch.
1: East Hope told me, if you expect any real success, you really have to frame a community's recovery in terms of its children. I'll bring you the football after the fire story from California in just a bit. But first, a comparable story of a devastated Canadian town you've likely never heard of.
0: You're listening to Constant Wonder. In this episode, Teneri Taylor is exploring various facets of disaster recovery, focusing on things that can go right after something has gone terribly wrong. Hopefulness just isn't an easy sell in the wake of a catastrophe— But what if hope is almost all that's left of your life scape? Let's return now to Teneri in conversation with Lucy Easthope, who is author of When the Dust Settles: Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope from an Expert in Disaster.
1: I think it must be a difficult balancing act for rescuers and recoverers who are trying to both reverence the dead and respect the survivors and kind of Think about how they're going to move on from this disaster. And and you were very impressed after a, a really horrific train disaster.
2: So that was a, a, a very powerful experience. And that was where I was fortunate, really, to be invited in to watch a recovery in a place called Lac-Mégantic in Quebec. An unmanned train that was carrying benzene broke from its couplings and powered down into the beautiful city below, and and just took it out completely and caused cremation temperature level fires all through the city, and particularly in one street. And then the runoff benzene went into the lack of the Lackawannaic the lake. Um, so it was really really devastating. The whole town center had to be rebuilt. Uh, Some people uh, were injured, we lost homes, and 47 people died. And uh, there, what I was very interested in was bringing together two particular interests in my work. My career, by that point, had been going on for about 20 years, and it was very obvious to me that the way that remains are rested and the way that the place that has seen such death is rested has huge uh, ramifications for how a place recovers. And lac was a disaster where all of the 47 uh, deceased came from the one place. And the place was incredibly important to it. And the coroners and the responders put at the heart of their recovery strategy that this would be key. They would rest the remains. And so I saw something very gentle, very delicate Um, They were very conscious of their children and their young people. They wanted the place to be happy again. They asked the children what they wanted as part of the rebuild and the children wanted an ice cream parlor and that was rebuilt. It was a very painful and very difficult recovering. I don't ever see things that aren't painful. You know, it's not like you can always do this pain-free. You can't. It's incredibly sad. But there was something very brave and admirable about the way that they did their strategy. And I came back from there thoroughly inspired about how to do this.
1: How do you know
2: when to end
1: the recovery process? And and what did they do there that was special?
2: So I think it's really important to always remember that the pain of the disaster never ends, you know. And that's really really important to my work and sometimes when I tell responders that they they look like they want to punch me in the face because they they have a very clear idea that you know they will do two things one is that they will bring this pain to an end and the second thing is that you know that there will be a defined point where they will be able to feel they've done something well and disaster recovery work doesn't work like that and there's no you know certainly for bereaved families there's never a recovery and in fact a lot of what I end up telling responders is that anniversaries, for example, get harder, not easier. So one big challenge is, is sort of what are you trying to achieve here? And certainly for the bereaved of Latmagontik, the, the, the pain is what we would call a multi-generational trauma. You know, it will, it will be in folklore. It will be told to grandchildren. What a peaceful recovery looks like is something that's very conscious, I think, is something that allows there still to run alongside that, some hope, some smiles. Um, I remember about a year after the fire here in in the tower block, in the Grenfell Tower fire, a discussion as to whether the children could have a fun day, you know, whether the poster could say fun day, whether that would be too insensitive. And so I think recovery is, is a sense, you know, you have to pick who's going to recover. And sometimes for disaster, you have to allow the children and young people, I always say, to have a horizon and to have some hope in the future. But at the same time, you're carrying a, a, an equal conflict. You're, you, you're aware that the disaster doesn't go anywhere. There are some physical things you need to do. And lac did this incredibly well. They rested the scene so the scene. Wait, what does what does that mean? They they did a very good um, recovery operation, uh, at which forensic anthropology was at the heart, but also they took a lot of um, uh, religious advice. It was a very uh, very uh, strongly Catholic uh, town, so the, the the scene was cleared. Um, but the, the remains were buried where possible. And then the, uh, the final remains that couldn't be identified were put into an ossuary in the shape of an angel, which is in the graveyard as well, which was slightly different from what I had seen at 9-11, where there was a very big technological promise made, really, that the remains will always be, uh, work will always be available to keep identifying them. And there's an ambivalence there. Some families, quite rightly, are very, very proud and grateful for that work. But it also means that the the disaster stays very, very open.
1: Am I hearing you say that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to disaster, but that we need to be thoughtful about remains and how they're returned and how long the recovery process is
2: dragged out? Absolutely. So you won't find me going into an aftermath with a fixed view. Very little is prejudged. But there is some core compassions, you might say. One is to give families as many choices as they want. And that can include families saying, I don't want to know. I I want to opt out. I want to not be part of this you know, if you look at the personal effects as an example, the families can never have something back if they don't want to engage with the process. They can have the items back clean, they can have the items back as is, as the American legislation describes it. So as they were found on the day, health and safety law permitting. My role at a disaster scene is to think about the people and the family's needs and keep available to them as many options as possible and act as their advocate. Because one thing to remember is that, as I say, you know, families often will have never been in this situation before. I do occasionally meet families who've, who've you know, by by the the nature of the fates you know have had the same experience 10 years before which is just heartbreaking you know they've lost another relative in an earlier disaster and they know how this goes but generally i meet people who have no experience and the best thing somebody like me can do is be there to support their needs and their choices and act for them you know they haven't trained for disaster so i my whole career is preparing for disaster. You know, I've got three or four exercises this month where we will prepare for disaster. But the only group missing from that is the future bereaved and the future survivors. So my role is to be there for them. That
1: was Lucy Easthope, the author of When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. Next, we'll learn about survivors taking it on themselves to bring back their town after a wildfire burned 70,000 acres in just one day. Of the 26,000 people who lived there before the fire, 24,000 lost their homes. But residents were determined to breathe life back into their life And of course, that's a massive undertaking that four years on is still in progress but we want to look at the special role that the high school football team played in bringing people back to the town. See, in Paradise, California, high school football was a huge part of their lives. Before the fire, home games of the Paradise High Bobcats were always full. And so it was that when the team got back onto their own field nearly a year after the fire, their season came to be about much more than scoring touchdowns. Because now, more than ever, the town needed something to rally around.
4: In this situation, there were things that were bigger than football. Providing hope to people, just showing how resilient our young people could be. That was the most important thing.
1: You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Teneri Taylor. The residents of Paradise, California always knew they lived in a special place.
5: Think of like the things you love about camping if you're a camper or being in the outdoors and what makes that special. And it's that tree canopy and driving down roads where you look up and you're not seeing the daytime sky, you're seeing the branches and the, the trees touching in the middle. People chose to live here, one, because it was affordable, but two, it was beautiful. And we would take walks and describe it as like, it's kind of like camping all the time, but we just have like, the best tent, and that's our house, you
4: know? I am born and raised in West Los Angeles, and I actually married a native Paradisean. <laughs> so uh, we've, we've lived in paradise here for 40 years. I was always a very outdoor person, and I had uh, no desire <laughs> to return to Los Angeles. I fell in love with this area. I love the trees, I love the mountains. All of my hobbies, I hunt, I fish, I snowmobile. Everything I love to do is right up my doorstep.
1: Two residents of Paradise, California describing their forest wonderland. That was before the campfire destroyed nearly 19,000 homes, businesses, and other structures on November 8th, 2018. That day, winds from the east whipped into town jumping the Feather River and burning more than 150,000 acres by the time it was done. The fire, as you may remember, was sparked by a faulty power line. Here's the situation in which resident Mark Maddox found himself the morning of the fire. At the time, he was wearing several hats in the city's administration. The assistant town manager, the public works director, and the town engineer.
5: I dropped off my kids at school. I knew something was wrong and I reported to the town hall as we were opening up our emergency operations center. Within a half hour, the situation obviously became much more dynamic. Imagine an earthquake impacting a community with essentially no notice, and that's what we were faced with. And knowing what we had trained on is that an east-to-west fire for Paradise is going to put a lot of pressure on our one major evacuation route. It essentially rendered two of them, two of the minor uh, routes, unusable. And moving east to west, that everybody was going to use uh, Skyway, which is our primary arterial uh, for the town of Paradise to get to the city of Chico, which is about eight miles further west of us. By 841, I was leaving town hall because I needed to help support and do something that made a difference. The biggest priority here is getting people out of town and trying to staff intersections and get flaggers out there and help keep vehicles moving down the evacuation corridors. So I left town hall. I went to the nearest traffic signal that is the most critical in a east to west fire at uh, Skyway and Neal and uh, manually overrided the traffic signal lights to hold green and keep people flowing the direction they need to go. And from there, I moved up to the next intersection to try and do the same thing. But the situation was different. That really required staff to continue to flag and get traffic moving. I was there with a probation officer that came just out of, because people just started coming, knowing something was wrong and mutual aid just started pouring into the town. I really spent a lot of time at that intersection flagging traffic and getting people out of town.
1: There's something just ringing in my ears. Uh, You said, I dropped my kids off at school, (laughs) and then I went to the emergency operations center. And I know you didn't forget about your kids.
5: No, no, absolutely not. So, My wife works here in Paradise. I did call her. And so she picked up the kids and head to the house. I said, you know, it's time to go. (laughs) So she went back and got the pets and evacuated with everyone. It took her hours, just like everybody else.
1: But you stayed. You didn't jump in the car with them.
5: No, no. That part is tough for sure. Um, They evacuated past me and, you know, exchanged a quick, I love you and keep going and I just watched, I'll never forget, it's kind of the most vivid thing I can remember, is the sky looked like it was night and watching the sea of red taillights uh, move past me and move further down the road and, and my wife and my family in the car ahead of me. I had a trust and a belief that everything was gonna be okay. What gave me strength was obviously prayer and as seeing that the vehicles were still moving right? Um, There's different spots in town where there was gridlock, but on Skyway where I was to see traffic still moving, um, that really gave me confidence and hope that uh, I could rest easy and continue to do my job. And um, uh, we stayed until um, the last vehicle was evacuated and there was no traffic on those roads in Paradise.
1: Somewhere up ahead of that intersection where Mark Maddox had been directing traffic, In that creeping line of taillights, the one that was snaking through the morning sky so black it looked like night, somewhere up there was the former principal of Paradise High, Jeff Marcus. But Marcus hadn't completely retired from the high school. He still served as the football team's special teams coach. He himself evacuated down that main arterial skyway, which Mark Maddox and his impromptu crew had turned into a one-way, five-lane escape route. I asked Jeff Marcus to describe what that car ride was like for him. He said the road that day was...
4: Encapsulated in flames. As I was leaving town, both sides of the road were on fire. Uh, Trees were on fire above me. Uh, I made a quick quick decision because I started seeing vehicles catching on fire. So I actually put my truck in neutral because I was thinking if they're sucking these embers up into their engine compartment and it's probably catching their air cleaners and other flammable items in their engine compartment. So I actually put my truck in neutral and coasted so I could still have braking power. But it was uh, virtually... Zero visibility, uh, flames, embers, dodging cars that were on fire or abandoned. About two miles of that. And then eventually kind of broke through that into uh, actually sunshine.
1: (laughs) After the evacuation, most people weren't allowed back into town for about a month. And even assistant town manager Mark Maddox wasn't sure he could face going home.
5: In the immediate aftermath, I didn't go back up to the town for like four or five days. Even though I had credentials, I could have gone back up the next day because one, I was probably a little bit in denial and giving myself some space and thinking that I know that my home is no longer there doesn't mean I need to go see it. I eventually did reach a space where I was ready and I went and I saw it and I saw the town, you know, 90 to 95% of all structures were lost and completely leveled to the ground. And our, we had, at one point, we had more commercial buildings on major corridors because the streets are wider and the buildings are, you know, constructed of different materials and have less landscaping. So we had more commercial structures than residential. And so what was left was what I can only describe as a post-apocalyptic novel, you know, writing of a bomb. Going off, leaving just chimneys. Um, you know, paradise got cold in the winter and occasionally the summer. So many homes had chimneys, and so standing chimneys and standing bricks, trees. You know, still smoldering and stumps smoldering, and some fallen trees and and uh, little toothpicks of what where green pine needles used to hang, um, but now were black and scorched. And so one of the most um, bizarre experiences was driving over downed you know, telecommunications lines, um, avoiding downed wooden utility poles um, and and really uh, just navigating just a completely unsafe and, uh, and hazardous community just days after the fire is really, really incredible and wish it upon no one to have to see an entire community and everything that you loved about that community just appearingly, and I say appearingly, for great, great reason, here, to be lost.
1: After the evacuation, residents found themselves scattered all over California and beyond, sleeping on friends' sofas or squished into their in-laws' basements. But as disaster recovery specialist Lucy East Hope could have predicted, they, of course, didn't just miss their homes and the forest beauty that was now changed forever. They also missed being together. School administrators reestablished Paradise High School more than a dozen miles away, first in the Chico Mall and then in an old Facebook warehouse at the Chico Airport. The classrooms were separated only by dividers. The sound carried, and according to one student, projectiles flew easily from one makeshift classroom to the next. On the day after the fire, the football team had been scheduled to play their first playoff game, but head coach Rick Prince after much hand-wringing, had to cancel the rest of the season, which was a blow to him as well, as this season was supposed to have been his last with the Bobcats.
6: I was going to retire from coaching after that 2018 season, and I walked into the classroom on the first day down at at the Chico Airport, and I saw those kids, and they are just, I, I mean, I don't know the terms to use. I just saw the shock in their face and the hollowness in their eyes. And I'm like, I'm not leaving now. I really felt like football, specifically athletics, could help these guys overcome what they had just been through. I just went home and told my wife, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to try to do another season. So at this point, we don't even know if we're going to have a season. We don't know if we're going to have a school. I don't even know if I'm going to have a job. And I met with about 12 kids. I said, hey, we're going to have a season. And they're like, well, where are we going to play? And I go, I don't know, but we're going to have a season. Who are we going to play? We'll get a schedule. What are we going to do for uniforms? We'll get uniforms. And, man, I was lying out of my teeth. I had no idea if we were going to actually have a season or not at that point. And I just started moving forward. I just, you know what? It ended up being good for me to move forward. I needed something to focus on other than, you know, the fire and the tragedy there. Um, you know, 86 people died. You know, it was quite, quite an event. Matter of fact, COVID pales in comparison to that fire for, for our community.
1: When it came time to start preparing for the next football season in early 2019, the best practice field Prince could find was an empty lot next to that warehouse at the airport.
3: It was mainly just weeds and rocks. We could still run plays, so we called it good.
1: That was Josh Alves, a varsity linebacker with the Bobcats. Coach Prince had likely never faced conditions like these before, but he was undaunted.
6: This field was a gravel driveway with grass growing out of it. And so I took those guys out there. We started out with about 15 of us, and we're just running offensive plays against no defense. So we get out there, and we're looking at this field, and I'm like, watch out for that pothole, watch out for that puddle. They're all in new clothes because all of their clothes burned. And all in this new shoes New pants And I'm like oh my gosh The moms are going to kill me We're getting muddy But we got out there And I go okay line up Let's get in the right formation And someone said coach Do you have a football And I'm like dang I don't have a football And one of the guys said hey Danny Danny has a football on his trunk All right, go get it So they ran over and got his football And we came out and we just We didn't have a football. We just started running plays against the air and saying, hey, we're going to prepare for whatever season we're going to have. We're going to be ready for it. As we started practicing, kids started coming back from everywhere. We had a kid return from Oregon. We had a kid return from Fresno. We had a kid return from San Diego. They came from all the neighboring towns, started coming back to school, and we would go out there and our team would grow and grow. In spring training that May, we went to a junior high school across town, and they graciously let us use their field. And we had almost the full squad back.
1: Meanwhile, as Coach Prince is rebuilding the football team so these kids had something positive to think about, Mark Maddox is trying to rebuild the town
5: we set up essentially a temporary town hall in another city, you know, that the government, you know, is supposed to be in the city that you govern. (laughs) So that was really strange. But the fire still lasted three weeks. I don't believe the evacuation orders were lifted for four and a half um, weeks after the fire, where people weren't allowed to go back into town to see what's left of their home. Mm
6: -hmm. And
5: so extremely challenging. But from a public works perspective, Um, our priorities are making sure the roads are safe. And so we had guardrails burned. We had trees down. We had trees standing that were a threat to fall that day. So we deployed damage assessment teams in so many different sectors, uh, culvert pipes. And we had plastic culvert pipes that would drain stormwater. And we had those melt and evaporate. And unbeknownst to us, completely evaporate underneath a roadway structure that was a threat to collapse if somebody was driving over it. So trying to do those damage assessments as quickly as we could to try and make sure that the town was safe to reopen and allow people to come back and really officially start the grieving process. And it's so difficult.
1: Maddox himself was able to start that grieving process sooner than others because he had access to Paradise within days of the fire. But he found himself both drawn to and repulsed by the remnants of his former life.
5: On the days that I would come up, I found myself bringing my bag lunch. And this is sad. (laughs) But I'd I'd bring my bag lunch and eat my lunch in front of, you know, my house's ashes. That was one thing I'd look back on. i go, that wasn't healthy. I wish I hadn't have done that. But maybe not. Maybe it's what I needed. So I would try and avoid that that area and sometimes I just couldn't help myself and it was still just trying to grapple with the loss and the memories that we had versus also the memories that no longer can be made at that place. So um, extremely challenging. I don't, yeah, I don't recommend it.
1: After a while, it was too much for him. About eight months after the campfire, Mark Maddox quit his job to work as a civil engineer in Chico, where at least he wouldn't have to be re-traumatized every day by what he saw. The football team, meanwhile, was coming back together. Players were sleeping on friends' couches so they could be close to practice. Only four players still lived in Paradise. And as sports writer Bill Plaschke points out in his book, Paradise Found, a High School Football Team's Rise from the Ashes. A few players were commuting an hour and a half just to get to school. Coach Prinz and his staff negotiated a schedule that included five home games and five away games. Though their equipment had burned and their scoreboard had partially melted, their field was unscathed. The team was thrilled to get back there and practice in August of 2019. Nothing was really normal, though. In fact, the team faced a challenge most high schoolers don't ever have to deal with. The national media had gotten wind of this comeback season unlike any other.
3: We had cameras in our faces since February of uh, 2019. and Those didn't leave us until the end of that season.
1: The players understood, though, that they weren't just doing this for themselves and their own futures.
3: We knew people were struggling after the fire, and we knew they liked football. So we wanted to give them something good to watch.
1: Once the first game rolled around, coaches Jeff Marcus and Rick Prince knew the players were really feeling the pressure.
4: Several of them were, you know, were vomiting, we're nauseous. One player said, the easy part of this night is when we're playing. <laughs> because they were seeing what was happening around them. They clearly understood their role as giving something back, giving some hope, giving a a positive experience, providing the opportunity for people to come back to campus, to reunite. But I think all of us were overwhelmed by the enormity of what happened. It was incredible. About 5,000 people came
6: to the game, which is huge for us. We do get, you know, large crowds, but our little stadium was packed. There were no seats, everybody standing around the field, and it was unbelievable. The national media attention was insane. It seemed like so many people that wanted to rebuild in Paradise came back. They got a taste of, you know, what it could be like. This is what Paradise could be. We could have it back. We could have our town back. And then those who knew they had to move on just came back just to remember, hey, this is what paradise was like for us. So it it just seemed like it gave a lot of healing to people, not only the first game, but the whole season going on. And our team was so excited, so fired up, that I think we could have beat most anyone on that night. And they just played great. So – It was a thrilling event, probably the biggest event ever in Paradise history. I thought we'd have a good crowd, but nothing like that.
1: The Bobcats won that game 42-0, to and as Coach Prince mentioned there, they went on to have an incredible season, undefeated, despite all of that pressure of living in temporary housing and not knowing when or if life would ever get back to normal. But some of that pressure exploded in the first playoff game. A few of the Bobcats sprang off the bench, something not allowed, to defend a teammate who was getting roughed up by an opposing player on the field.
4: There was a, about a 275-pound lineman that began pummeling one of our running backs. What our student-athletes have been through, you know, It was such a strong bond that they looked at each other as a brother. And so when our player was assaulted, uh, several of our players went onto the field. Players on the field tried to pull this opposing player off of our player. So we ended up getting six players suspended. I went to the hearing. And unfortunately, it was a rule that It is what it is. And so uh, we had six players suspended for the semifinal game.
1: Having gone through so much personal trauma, the Bobcats now faced a semifinal game without a handful of their starters. At halftime, the Bobcats led 14-0, but it had been already a hard-fought competition. And early in the second half, Brendan Moon intercepted a pass from the opposing team. Moon didn't usually start and wasn't one of the team's star players, but all those holes in the roster made space for him to take center stage. Now, Brendan Moon had been wrestling with personal tragedy, greater even than that of his teammates. Here's special teams coach and former principal Jeff Marcus again.
4: Brendan had been in foster care for a long time. And I I know his foster parents pretty well. I've had a number of their foster children in school throughout the years. So towards the end of the season, Brendan's birth mother was incarcerated, and she ended up hanging herself. And so she was on life support. Brendan came to me and said, you know, Mr. Marcus, I, I need to miss some school. When I found out what happened, absolutely, you know, what what can we do to help support you? You know, it's just a, a situation where the family had to make a decision. And so, ultimately, they um, decided to allow her to, to pass. And so, he had this heavy burden on his heart. And so, he was a backup player, and he started that semifinal as an outside linebacker. And Brandon is all of about 5'7, uh, 160, 65 pounds. And he ended up intercepting a pass and ran it back for a touchdown. And it was really the swing of momentum in that game. And we went on to win that game with six of our starters suspended.
1: Wow. I can't imagine how he felt in this moment after so much heartbreak.
4: When he was running in the open field for that touchdown, he looked back at the team, the entire way. The team, the coaches, the fans, everybody supported him through this difficult time.
1: The team advanced to the sectional finals with their full roster, but there was no fairy tale ending. They lost 20 to 7. It was a tough defeat for them, and not just because they didn't win a title.
6: After the game, the players were in tears and just so upset. And it wasn't for the loss of the game that was part of it. It was because they just realized that this sport and their teammates and their coaches that they have been with for all these months after the fire was over. And now it was back to just reality. Where am I gonna live? How am I gonna get to school? All those things. Now they were faced with that, have to deal with that. So. All the ups and downs were there on the field, but it really, really helped them focus because of all the other things off the field.
3: We didn't really win in our eyes, but in the town's eyes, we won 100%. And I've been in multiple situations where people ask if I played football on that team. And I said, yeah. And they've explained to me that it helped out the town more than we could possibly know. But for us, it's a smokescreen because all we see is the loss at the end of the year. But the town, they see a victory.
1: Josh Alves graduated in 2020, but he hasn't put Bobcat football behind him. He's still part of the organization as a JV coach. He mentors linebackers and offensive linemen. Coaches Rick Prince and Jeff Marcus, they finally got to retire as of this summer. And what about Mark Maddox, who left his city administration job and went to Chico eight months after the fire?
5: It didn't take long for me to go, "Uh uh-oh, I did something wrong here. And I really, truly believe that my calling is to be here in the seat where I'm sitting right now looking out on Skyway, the same road that I ran, (laughs) ran on. I'm sitting looking over that street out the window and knowing that this is where I'm meant to be. I was trained. I was educated. I was put through what we went through for a reason. And to leave it behind and leave it to someone else, it just didn't feel right. And so I came back after six months. And I wouldn't have it any other way. We just have the most amazing team of of people that have the same vision and the same drive and energy to see a recovered, thriving paradise.
1: But I had to ask Maddox, just because the dream and the vision was there, just because people were committed to return to paradise, did that mean the town should be rebuilt? A forested community in a drying, warming climate?
5: I think that's a really natural question and I love the opportunity to answer it. So thank you. I believe that it should and it should be done right and it should be done in a way that incorporates lessons learned. If a future fire did occur, the type of destruction that we saw would not be comparable to what we would see in the future. And that's large than part due to defensible space and ordinances and codes and requirements of new structures. and.
1: Give us some concrete examples of some of those things so we can picture yeah. what's going to look different in paradise.
5: Well, obviously, the amount of trees and vegetation, keeping a clear zone, defensible space of about 100 feet around your home, no vegetation within five feet of your home. And a lot of people associate, oh, a beautiful home needs those flower beds right underneath the windows. Well we're adopting codes that say actually don't do that because we won't permit it. That's a really difficult conversation, but you know, decorative rock is a great option or concrete. And really just be really thoughtful. The kind of density of the mesh requirements under your eaves the, the type of roof that you install. And so those types of things are going to make your structure much more resilient and as long as they're maintained.
1: And what's been happening with public works, community infrastructure rather than just private dwellings?
5: We're installing nothing but concrete pipes. We saw that there was plastic pipes burned and concrete pipes didn't. We're working to rehab all of our roads in Paradise to add additional evacuation capacity into our circulation and into the town to make the town safer but we just are awarding a contract next month for an early warning system that would have 21 towers throughout the town of paradise that we could speak into a microphone just like you and i are right now and provide an audible message throughout the entire town that says there is a threat or there is not a threat or these zones are being evacuated Those types of efforts collectively that that we're doing here in the town of Paradise are really going to help people see what we're doing and see that it matters and it makes a difference and be able to say, hey, I want to come back. Or what we're even seeing a lot of is I'm coming to Paradise for the first time.
1: Jeff Marcus is convinced. He's retired, but he's not going anywhere. His property has far fewer trees than it ever did, but that's okay.
4: You know, it's different here. We We never could have solar. We have solar now. Uh, We never could have a vegetable garden. We can have a vegetable garden. We still have trees, but it's a lot more sun exposed, and we have an incredible view. We can see surrounding mountains. We can see into the Sacramento Valley, lights in the valley at night. We have a million-dollar view now, and we appreciate that.
1: The town of Paradise keeps a counter on its website tracking the number of homes rebuilt, which is almost at 1,500, and the number of people who have moved back, 7,000 and counting. So they're still well below their pre-fire population levels, but they're hopeful, as their town's Make It Paradise campaign suggests. Circling back now to Lucy Easthope. She's the disaster recovery expert I chatted with as we began this episode. I asked her about her perspective on the disaster we've all lived through the last couple of years, this pandemic, and what our view of the future should be. And she said we ought to prepare for disasters, yes. And by the way, she thinks pretty highly of America's preparedness culture. So prepare, yes, but we can balance that with the fact that we don't have to fixate on bad news and live in fear all the time. And she ended with this revelation about herself that really sticks with me.
2: The last few years, I think, have really brought home yet again how precious life is. So my view would be to desperately work quite hard, actually, to find the balance. And generally, that balance involves also just taking time, as I say in the book, you know, to feel the sun on your face, feel the grass under your feet, just really ground yourself because you can't live worrying all the time. And I think people expected my work to make me hyper-vigilant. It doesn't. It makes me hyper-grateful. And that's something I would definitely recommend.
1: That was Lucy Easthope, author of When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. Thanks to her for sharing her insights. We'd also like to thank Mark Maddox, Public Works Director and Town Engineer for the City of Paradise, California. Jeff Marcus, retired principal at Paradise High School and former special teams coach there, and to Rick Prince, retired head coach from Paradise High. And thanks to Josh Alves, who played with the Bobcats and has since returned as a JV coach. I'm Tenery Taylor.
0: And I'm Marcus Smith. This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Mamie Teeples and Daniel McDonald. Thanks to Parker Schmidt and Mitchell Towsley and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team, Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.